Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. We've got Bibles down by your feet in baskets, and I want you to get with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're doing a series now called Battle Ready, and uh, my plan, which went out the window, my plan was we would go through the armor of God that was outlined in Ephesians chapter 6, and I thought, man, here are all these cool different uh, pieces of armor that God tells us about in his New Testament, and as Christians, you know, how do we put that on and get ourselves ready? And then some things happened over the last couple weeks, and I had to make some shifts in the, in the game plan, and we ended up in Deuteronomy chapter 1 of all places. And so uh, one of the reasons why, it gives us a picture of the people of God going to battle, and it gives us some clear, I think, some clear teaching on um, how to get ourselves ready for that. And so last week, we jumped into the first portion of a sermon that was given in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and, and then we're going to pick it back up again this week. And uh, hopefully we'll learn some things about um, how to get our hearts ready. Now, the truth is, I'm not a huge fan of how God was leading me in this week. In fact, you'll see in just a moment, there's some things about this that I'm like, oh, I just, you know, God speaks and I, you know, I say, okay, sir, um, I'm going to listen. I'm going to do what you want me to do. So let's go ahead and read it. We'll pray and we'll get to work. Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting in verse 34 reads like this. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it either. But your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, We've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it an easy thing to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Sair all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping, and he turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time that you spent there. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us to hear your voice. We pray, God, that you would speak through your word. We believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us, Lord, and so we're looking for that experience of hearing your voice and profiting from it. I pray, God, that you would use this time, that you would help each of us to think about the battle in front of us, that we would become battle-ready people, that we would be a battle-ready church, because we are paying attention to your voice and we are looking to obey by faith. And so, God, we need your help right now. Pray that you would soften each of our hearts to receive this word from you, that you would help each of us to... um, to just have an experience of you in this moment, you speaking directly to us. We pray in your name. Amen. 
Amen. As you heard in the, in the prayer, I really do believe that the Bible is a book that God has given to us and that God communicates to us through it and all of it. In fact, when Paul was writing to Timothy and he said, all scripture is God breathed, he didn't have the New Testament yet. He was, he was writing it as he was speaking it. And so he's talking about all of this stuff, even in the Old Testament. It is God given to us and it is for our prophet. It's useful and he outlines a bunch of different ways. It corrects us. It teaches us, it rebukes us, it trains us in righteousness so that we're thoroughly equipped to do what God wants us to do. But the Bible has that ability. And sometimes when we look at some Old Testament stories or Old Testament sermons, we go, hmm, what do I do with this? Right? You look at Deuteronomy 1 and you hear kind of this, this you know, stern speaking of God and you go, ooh, I don't, I don't know if I like this. And sometimes here's what I hear people will say, this is just the Old Testament God. He was just angry. And then we have a new, you know, the New Testament, and that shows us the, the, the love of God. And the truth is, that's a false dichotomy. God is unchanging. He didn't say, hey, I, I tried it this way. I was angry at first, and then I chilled out a little bit, uh, sent my son, and now I just love you. The truth is, the whole Bible reveals to us the character of God. And we need to be people then who recognize that even Deuteronomy chapter 1, is, it's for us. And it's for our good, and there are things that we can benefit from it. And what I want to show you today is that if we're going to be battle-ready, we have to be aware of who God is and how he works in the world. Uh, because the truth is, we might end up on the battlefield, and we might go to battle, and we, we, we might actually, in presumption and arrogance, march out thinking, I am doing the Lord's work, when in fact, he's not with us in that moment, as we see here in our text. And so we need to be the kind of people who listen. So let's do a little bit of review. Last week, we started at this uh, front end of the sermon. Moses is preaching. He's preaching a sermon uh, to a people, and they're right on the edge of the promised land, and he's trying to get them ready. He's saying, look, 38 years previously, we were right here. We stood here. God marched us right up here, and he said, this is your land. This is my promise. You go in, and you take possession of it. And instead of obeying by faith, they say, that sounds you know, fine and well, but let's send scouts ahead and let's get a survey of the land so we know what we're getting into. And they send the scouts ahead and really what they're doing is they're showing they don't trust God. They don't believe in the word of his promise. And when they begin to see the obstacles in their lives, they say there are giants there, there are fortified walled cities, there are strong military campaigns. If we go in there, we're getting crushed. Here's how they interpret it then. God must hate our guts. He brought us out of Egypt simply to kill us himself. And that's the language of unbelief. God says, I've got something for you. I'm not saying it's going to be really, really easy. I've got something for you, but you're going to have to go through all of these different challenges and trials. But by faith, it is possible. Unbelief, though, interprets it and says, I don't think that's possible. And I think God probably doesn't like me. He doesn't like me very much. And what we were learning then is the importance of faith. If we're going to go to battle, if we're going to consider the Christian life a battle, we have to be able to say, we need faith. We need to be able to hear the voice of God and, and trust that what he says is true. And then as we keep working through this sermon where we pick it up this morning, we're going to find the importance not only of faith, but this thing that, I, I like the phrase that Paul uses in the New Testament. He calls it obedience of faith. Meaning, I hear the promise of God I trust that promise, and now I'm going to align my life 
to that promise. I'm going to obey by faith. I'm not just going to bootstrap this thing and pull myself up and do what God wants me to do. I'm going to trust his promise, and then I'm going to align my life in obedience to that promise. So that's what we're, we're aiming at. When we, when we don't do that, there, there are consequences. And that's what this whole section is about. It's about telling us about the consequences of the older generation and preparing this new generation of faith to enter in and take possession. So here's what you need to see. God is able to discipline his people. And I know that, we, we, let's just be honest, we don't like that. We don't like that, that God is able as creator God, as sovereign, he's able to look at his people, and when they fail to obey, he's able to correct them, and he disciplines them, and it's actually for their good, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. So he gets angry. Look at verses 34 and 35. When the Lord heard what, he, what you said, he's talking about the unbelieving generation, when he heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors. God is angry with them because he's telling them about his promise and about how they can take possession of that promise, and they, in rebellion, have rejected that plan. Now, my son, he's four years old, and he started using this word this week, and it just blew me away. He said, um, he looked at me, Harrison, he's four years old, and he goes, Daddy, are you disappointed in me? I was like, disappointed? That is a big word, bud. And I'm like, "Do do you know what that means? And it surprised me because I don't use it very often. I'm not walking around my house like, I'm so disappointed in you, dude. Um, I've, I've used it a couple of times, but it has obviously stood out to him. And so he's asking, God, are you, or I'm sorry, Daddy, are you disappointed in me? And we began to talk through it, and I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not disappointed in you. There are times when I want you to do something for your good, and you don't do it, and those are moments when I get disappointed. And he kind of gets it, but he also doesn't. So he'll use it like, arbitrarily against Reese, my, my daughter. He's like, I'm disappointed in Reese. And I'll be like, why? And I'll explain it. I'm like, that's ridiculous, dude. Um, but God can get disappointed, just like a good father can. God can get disappointed. He can look at, I'm telling you, this is for your good. This is a gift that I'm giving you. This is something that you could lay claim of by faith. And when we say, no, God, I don't like your plan, or we say, I'm going to do it my own way, or you're going to say, I don't really trust that that's a good plan, God does get disappointed because he's a good father. Not only does he get disappointed, he can also get angry, which is weird because, you know, if I get angry as a dad and then I want to punish my kids, usually that's full of sin, right? If I'm upset and I'm angry, my anger usually isn't very righteous. It's self-righteous. I'm angry because it, you know, isn't what I want them to do. And so sometimes I can, I can be upset and I can say something and, and that can actually be something I have to apologize for because that's anger that I have that, is, that isn't holy. But God, when he's angry, it is a righteous anger. So when he looks at his people and he's told them, this is for your good and this is your promised land that I have given on oath to you and to your ancestors, and they say, no, we're not doing that, God. He's, there's a righteous anger. And, and, and then what he does is he, he punishes his people. He disciplines his people. As hard as that may sound, that's what he does. He tells that whole generation they will not go in. And this is an expression of his love. I'm going to try to prove it to you. But it is an expression of God's love. He says in verse 37, 
Moses now is kind of talking about the people and all that happened and their unbelief, and he begins to kind of, sounds like he's putting blame on them. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me and said, you shall not enter it either. You know, we, we tend to point fingers and go, it's your fault. But he also owned some of it as well, that he, he, he was responsible for his own unbelief and for the rash words that he spoke and the way that he handled things in a certain situation. And God said, Moses, you will not enter this promised land. Your, your, um, your assistant will, but you will not have that privilege to go in there. Joshua, Caleb, and the children will go in, but look at verse 40. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. What is he doing here? Isn't it? It's unfortunate because, I mean, it's, ele- it's an 11-day march to get there. It's a promise that God gives them, and he tells them how it's all going to play out. And instead of taking faith in that promise and going in, they end up wandering through the desert wilderness for 40 years. And it is God disciplining his children. And it's, a, it's actually a beautiful thing. I know it's hard to, to drink in because we, we don't like to think about God doing that. In fact, a lot of us, we kind of, some of us come from, from um, understandings of Christianity that say things like, God loves me unconditionally. And that's, you know, I, I'm okay with that language, I actually prefer God loves me contra-conditionally. He loves me in spite of the things that I do. But, but I want to know how people fill that in, because sometimes people think, God loves me, and he loves me so deeply, he doesn't care how I live my life. And that's just not true. His love compels him. His love, his, his love it, there's an obligation for us to live in relationship with God, and his love actually demands that he would correct us when we are straying from the best path for us. So let me show it to you in, in Hebrews chapter 12. There's a whole section on it. I'd encourage you to read it for yourself. But Hebrews 12 is a section in the Bible where it tells us how God operates. And it says this, My son, do not make light the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. God disciplines us, out of love. This is what he does. In fact, it goes on to say, if you're not experiencing the Lord's discipline, you should be concerned about your relationship. You may even be in an illegitimate relationship with God because God cares for his children and he cares enough to correct them. So God disciplines us and it's a proof of his love. Now, when you think about that then and you read a story like this and you get really uncomfortable, why is God doing this? 40 years in the desert? That doesn't sound fair. They all die in the desert. They don't get to go in. Does that mean he hates them? I mean, maybe their language was right. Maybe he does hate this generation and he's just going to allow them to die off. But the truth is, he's still loving them even while he's disciplining them. So if you just peek over into chapter 2, what does it say? In verse 7, it tells us about that whole 40-year experience. And and in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord your God has blessed you in the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. That's an important phrase right there. He's been with you this 40 years, and you have not lacked anything. So even while they were wandering in the desert, God was not just, you know, waiting like, oh, these guys, I need them to die off. No, he was still caring for them, but he was disciplining them. We're going to talk about why in just a minute. You might think Moses screwed up so bad that maybe God didn't like him anymore. You did a great job to this point, but then 
You spoke rash words. You were an unbeliever, just like the rest of the gang. And God just kind of shelves them and goes, yeah, you're done. I'm done with you. I'm sick and tired of how you guys are behaving. I'm just setting you aside. But that's not the case either. The discipline is something that God still, even though Moses doesn't get to go in, God is still caring for and loving and honoring this dude. Right? You read the rest of the Bible. What do people think about Moses? What what does the believing people of God say about Moses? He is a hero of the faith. He is somebody that has given us the law of God. He was the spokesperson. He was a prophet in, in the order of God that we look to and we go, man, we want another prophet like this. We want another leader like this. Hebrews 11 puts him forward as a hero of the faith. And then, do you guys remember when, when Jesus took two of his uh, close followers up, a, up the mountain and there was an event that happened? We call it the transfiguration. He goes up on the mountain with his two closest followers and they're, they're walking up there and they have no idea what's about to happen. And then before their very eyes, his, Jesus went from being this ordinary-looking Galilean guy, and then he was transformed. His figure was transformed into who he truly is. The glory of God. They go up the mountain, and they're looking, and all of a sudden, the glory of God and the disciples are geeking out like, whoa, this is awesome. And two people show up, Moses and Elijah. Moses is there. God is not saying, hey, dude, you really screwed up on this one. I have no future for you in this plan. No, 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 no. God is saying, I love you enough that I'm going to discipline you in love, but you are still my guy. That's how God deals with us. He loves us enough to discipline us for our good, and he is preparing a people then. That's what, that's what he's doing. He's preparing the, the next generation to be people of faith who cherish the holiness of God, who desire to follow God wholeheartedly in everything that they're doing. And now they have a a recent example of why it is so important that they would stick very closely to the promises of God and and obey those promises by faith. So um, we need to understand that God loves us enough to discipline us. And I I wanna be careful here because I've heard people who, having heard teachings like this, they go, Okay, let me figure out then. I've screwed up a lot. Is there any future for me as a believer? Because maybe the rest of my life is just decimated because of all these choices I've made. If that's true, if God disciplines me, maybe my life is just going to be 40 years of wandering around in the desert wilderness and then I'll die. And I want to encourage you to be careful about trying to figure that out because that's not exactly how it works. We shouldn't think, okay, I did all these really poor things, so clearly the rest of my life is, is never going to be significant. I'm never going to do anything for God's glory. The truth is God uses broken people. It's the only kind of people he's got, right? We all make these poor choices, and that doesn't, that doesn't take us off the team. He doesn't just bench us and go, yeah, I'm never going to use you. What did he do with, with Saul of Tarshish, a guy who was a, a, a hater of the followers of Jesus trying to persecute the church? What happened to him? Oh, he became the Apostle Paul, wrote most of the New Testament, was an incredible missionary church planter. So don't look at your life and go, well, if that's true, if, I, if God is going to discipline me, then the future of my life is probably going to be garbage. That's just not true. God loves you too much and he can use you. He is the redeeming God who will take some of these things that we do and he will leverage them for incredible glory. And you can have an awesome ministry if you will entrust your life to God. So God is making a, a people who are ready. 
That's what he's doing here. This sermon is about helping this generation recognize we're going in and we're going to be a holy people. J.C. Ryle, he wrote a book, I think it's really important. It's called Holiness. And in it, and I'm just quoting from a faulty memory, so I'm paraphrasing, and this is not how he said it exactly, but he said this, most Christians do not have an appetite for holiness. Most Christians have never really pursued holiness as a goal. And he said this, he said, a lot of us, if we were to go to heaven, we wouldn't like it there because it is a holy city. And he's encouraging people to really think through if God is holy and he wants us to reflect his character, we need to devote our lives entirely to him. That's what he's doing. He's helping us to see he is preparing a people to go in. And there are blessings for obedience. We, are, we actually see a couple examples, living examples in our text here. There are two dudes who will go in, and the reason why is because they have faith and they have that obedience of faith. So let's look at, look at them one at a time, Caleb and Joshua. Caleb verses 35 and 36. No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb. He will see it, and I will give, I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Caleb's going in. He's a believer. He's obedient. His life is wholly devoted to the things of God, even though that meant that he was standing almost all by himself. While the rest of the people of God are saying, there's no way we can do this, Caleb is the one of the guys who's saying, we absolutely can. God has given us his word and his promises, and my life is wholly devoted to him. If all you jokers say, we're not in, he's saying, I'm still in. Whatever God is calling us to do, I'm going to commit my life to that. Now, what would it look like for us then to, to have our lives look and feel like that? That if we would say we want to be wholly devoted to the things of God. My concern is most of us kind of treat the Christian life like, like high school, like we treated high school. If I get a passing grade, I'm happy, right? If I, if I just get through this thing, I'll be good. I'm not really trying to be a star student here. I'm just trying to, you know, just do enough. I'll come to church. I'll do a few different things. I don't really intend to allow God to take over my entire life. I just want a little bit of that God stuff and, you know, his blessings and all of that. I want to encourage you to think about what would it look like to have your life wholly devoted to the things of God so that when you wake up in the morning, your entire day is marked by his agenda. Okay, I'm going to work today. What's it going to look like to be wholly devoted to God in my workplace? I'm going to deal with people as a believer, as an ambassador. What's that going to look and feel like? Okay, I'm going to make some choices here throughout my day and some decisions about what we're doing as a family or what I'm doing as an individual or vocational choices and all of that. We're saying, I want the voice of God to steer and guide and direct me in all of this because I want to be wholly devoted to God. And then Joshua, he's the other guy who also gets to go in. Look at verse 38. Your assistant, Moses, your assistant named Joshua, son of Nun, he will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit the land. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter it. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. Joshua is the assistant to Moses. And this is one of those moments where when, when we say we're going to obey by faith, this is a hard sell. Moses, you're not going in. The greatest desire of your life and ministry is that you would lead the people and you would get them to that final moment where you get them in. And you would get to see this land and you would be able to celebrate 
I led these people for 40 years and we entered in. I want to be a part of that. And he, he made that request a couple times and God said, no, you will not enter that land, but your assistant will. The thing you want to do, the person coming behind you gets to do that. Encourage them. When you're willing to obey by faith the voice of God to that level, you're on to something, right? When you humble yourself enough to say, I'm going to celebrate the victories of God in somebody else's life, in somebody else's generation. I'm going to celebrate when another church is just killing it because they are preaching the gospel and the Spirit of God is anointing their work and revival has come, and I'm going to celebrate that. When we are able to humble ourselves and trust in the work of God in other places, I think that's a good expression of obedience of faith. And what we see here is Joshua's going in, and it's ironic because they were saying, man, if we go there, these giants are going to destroy our children. And here's what God's saying, no, no, no. Your children that you were so worried about, you thought you'd be digging their graves in this promised land, they're going to take possession of it. They're going to go in, and they will occupy the land. Now, here's what happens when God is correcting us. This is my experience at least, and I wonder if it is true for other people as well. Often when God is doing this work in us, we try to, we try to, um, we try to shortcut the process, okay? We get to the place where we realize, okay, God's doing something here. I, okay, I am in the wrong. Let's hustle through this. Look at how it plays out. Verse 41. Then you replied, we've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it an easy thing to go up into the hill country. I screwed up. I'm going to try to make things right again. I screwed up, okay? God is revealing something, and now I'm going to put my sword on, and I'm going to go to battle, and I'm going to valiantly fight, because that's what God wanted me to do. And Christopher Wright, he says, look, there, there are the same activity. God is saying, go up and take land. Take the land. Strap your swords on and go. And they say, no way. Now, a few moments later, God says, I don't want you to go. And they say, we're doing this thing. We have to be careful that we're listening to the voice of God and not just listening to our own impressions. Um, what we do is we, we try to short change the process. Look at verses 42 and 43. But the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up and fight because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. Here's how this works. We identify that God's at work in our hearts and we go, I need to hurry up and get through this so I can get back to business as usual. That's what I do. Recently, a couple things, uh, um, I've been working on a few different things and some stuff has come to my attention of ways that I'm dealing with people in unhealthy ways and I'm realizing God's kindly revealing my own heart. And I go, awesome, God. Thank you for that. I'm aware of that now. I own that. What do we need to do to fix it real quick? Because what I want to do is I want to get back to it. And, and here's the reality. Sometimes God is wanting to do a deep and slow work in you right? Sometimes he is doing something in you that you can't fast track. He's doing something in you because he cares so deeply and he really wants to change you at the internal level. He wants you to be a new creation. And you don't get to microwave that. You don't, you don't get to just say, hey God, thanks for the lesson. Let's, let's hurry this thing up. Okay, I was wrong. Let's go and fight again. Let, let's, let's get back on track. 
I mean, I do this, I do this in, in my marriage, right? If I'm wrong, I want to quickly apologize to dismiss the situation so we can get back to normal. And we do that in our Christian life as well, don't we? We, we find out that God is working on us and we say, okay, fine, I'm wrong. I'm going to strap my sword on and I'm going to go to battle. And by doing that, here's what we're doing. We're taking matters into our own hands. A lot of times when we recognize God's discipline and we, we realize we have done something that he doesn't want us to do, what we start to do is we barter with God and we pray like this, God, please spare me from the consequences of that choice. And then we begin to talk to him about Look, if you spare me, I will never do that again. I promise you, God, I will, I will do such a great job on this front. I'll put some things in place in my life so that I'm not even tempted in that direction, but please spare me from the consequences of that choice that I've made. And, and then what do we do? We want to prove to God that we're serious. I'm going to fix it, God. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to put my sword on. I'm going to show you that I mean business, and I'm going to get this thing right again. You know what we're doing? We're moving away from God when we're doing that. We're not moving toward him. Ted Tripp, he talks about this, and, and it's just this reality that sometimes the way that we deal with our own flaws is to, is to go away from God in our own self-righteousness. We want to fix it. What does God want? What does the gospel call us to do? We move toward him. We acknowledge, I've fallen short of what you want from me. I'm not going to try to go patch this thing up really quick. I'm going to go to you. You're the only one who can change me. You're the only one who can make me new and help me to be both forgiven and empowered to live in this new way of life. We go to him. That's what the gospel invites us to do. It's, it's surrender. It's not putting on our sword saying, we're going to go fight this battle and prove to God how, how serious we are. We actually lay down our swords when we encounter the gospel. And we say, I'm going to you. You're, it, it's in the power of your name that anything is going to happen in my life. I'm surrendering. I've screwed up. If I keep taking matters into my own hands, probably going to make it worse, which is exactly what happens here. The people took it into their own hands and they experienced a devastating loss. Look at verse 43. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and they beat you down from Sair all the way to Hermah. They went up thinking it was an easy thing and they found out very quickly that God said, I will not be with you if you go on this mission. And they had to learn that one the hard way. Verse 45, you came back and you wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed at Kadesh many days, all the time that you spent there. Here, church fam, here's what we need. We need to recognize that God is doing a work in us. And we have to submit to his gracious and loving fatherly hand of correction. Right? We, we want to go with him, even though that's, that's not the preferred route. The preferred route is, yeah, I screwed up. Let's quickly get into the promised land. But God is often doing this slow, deliberate process in us because he loves us. And that work, as unpleasant as it may seem, and it is, the goal is very beautiful. In my own life, the, the times where God has been refining me, shaping me, and molding me in, into a faithful follower of him, they're, they're not easy times. They're the most rugged and demanding of times, and they're, they, they don't go as fast as I would like them to. But at the end of it, when, when you're going through this process and you see God's good hand at work in all of it, 
the end result is absolutely worth it. So, so here, here's what we need to remind ourselves of. God is calling us to obedience of faith. If we will not follow him wholeheartedly, we can go to battle and we can lose. So what do we need to do? We need to be the kind of people who surrender to him, who trust in him, who obey him. Romans 15 verse 4 puts it like this. It's reminding us of the importance of this story for us today. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might find hope. This message, as stinky as it is, right? None of us like to be disciplined. It's meant to give us hope because God is at work. And if we'll surrender to him and trust in his process, he will help us to become a holy people. So what's the main takeaway for us? The main takeaway for me in the last two weeks is the battle is won or lost on the turf of our hearts. Before we even get into the thick of battle, it is won or lost on the turf of our hearts. Are we willing to trust in the promises of God and obey him come what may? Or will we revise the plan and try to do things our own way? Let's surrender entirely to God's plan for us. And let's trust that he is a good God leading us home. So let me pray. I'll invite the Josh and Mel to come and we'll worship once more. But let's just spend a moment in prayer. God, would you continue to search out our hearts and help us to believe, God, that even when you're correcting us, it's for our good. That it's actually an expression of your love. And the unbelieving temptation we have is to think that's not good, that's not fair, and you must not like us. So would you silence that voice and, and give us instead the voice of promise that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. And if that's true, then you continue to display your love for us in, in an infinite number of ways. Daily, you are reminding us of your care for us, but we need to be the kind of people who are responding with obedience and faith. So help us, God. We want to be a church community that's known for that, that's known for hearing your voice and going your way. Even if we are Caleb's, even if we have to stand alone, God, would you help us to be faithful to you? We pray this, please, in your name. Amen.